This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In Manuel Muñoz's story collection, The Consequences, we learn about characters and their conflicts in California's Central Valley, in the small towns around Fresno. Most of the stories are set in the 80s. Most of the characters are Mexican or Mexican-American. They are farm workers, those unsung invisible laborers who do the fine-fingered work that helps put food on our tables. They're also persecuted by the migra and others in their circles as they manage that strange brand of displacement experienced by characters whose identity is not so easily defined or named. They are American-born or from Mexico, young or old, gay or straight. The characters are young mothers and teens, husbands and wives, migrant workers, or the foremen of those workers. All stories are about loss. They say for us the unsayable. The stories stand for the things we cannot articulate. What do these stories by Manuel Muñoz say for us? A lot. About the journeys we take from one country to another, from one town to the next, from one stage of life to whatever inevitably awaits us. With these stories, we see the reality of human nature, of human foibles, but also the ways we work towards small moments of reckoning with our verdades, our truths, as a kind of survival, by simply moving forward, pressing on, persisting. I spoke to author Manuel Muñoz about his story collection, The Consequences. So I do want to start with the idea of the short story to begin with and why you are telling your stories in this form again. I suppose that there's something that I'm drawn to with the form, how compressed it is and the challenge it takes to, I don't want to say sum up a life, but it seems that the best stories or the stories that have always affected me are the ones that have seemed to give you the totality of someone's experience in just the well-chosen moment. Uh, and that's the, you know, that's what I, I'm, I'm drawn to with, with writing. I keep trying to look for that, that pinpoint of experience of, of a character's life that, that will fit um, the story and rather than a novel. And it's so interesting because I think sometimes people have the assumption that you just you're doing the exact opposite when you write a short story, that you couldn't possibly compress it all in that way. Um, I'm a, a devotee of the story theories that Charles E. May has written about. He's written a lot about how stories say the unsayable. So I was really struck by an essay that you wrote for Lit Hub where you say, quote, I write fiction because I'm often trying to get at the emotional mystery of a glance or an unspoken exchange or a decision made in a moment. Whatever might reside in the unsayable has always seemed most potent to me as a reader when it's confronted by a character who may not know the most satisfying answer. And I, I, I printed that out and I I put it on my computer so I can look at it all the time. It's so profound. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that idea. Sometimes I think about how and why, just to go back to the stories at my kitchen table, 
hearing my parents tell stories um, and why they're so good at it. And I think it's there's there's something about how they have decided they can read the moment in the room when in, everyone around them is ready to hear what they're about to say. Um, and I, I just think that there's there's something there um, about their ability to figure out, you know, pull it. It's just like pulling something out of the sky. Um, it, it's just their their knowingness of how and why something um, seemingly, you know, not very monumental or or important in their daily life warrants everybody around them needing to listen to it. Um, and they craft a great story, and usually it's very funny. Um, but other times when it's something profound or moving or extraordinarily sad or redemptive, um, you know, that, that, um, that talent to recognize that moment, has, it, that's what always has drawn me to the story. Um, novels, of course, do that. Um, but there is something about knowing when you have had something monumental in your own life, uh, you know, um, you know, Grace Paley, enormous changes at the last minute, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and the thing is, there, you're not doing anything to undercut the story. It's actually, I mean, it's in full bloom somehow. Exactly as you say, it's a knowingness that can come through in a, in a very economical, uh, tiny space. It's, it's magic. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, <laughs> but um, I do want to talk about um, the the stories and the consequences. Most of the characters are are Mexican or Mexican American. They are farm workers. Um, Where most of the stories are set, I think, in the eighties. There are no cell phones in your stories, and I was thinking about that. How the characters in these stories are cut off from someone or something or some place, but even a smartphone would not help matters. I mean, it wouldn't do nothing to connect them. It it was so interesting to me to read through um, a story like Anyone Can Do It, for example, or The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA, and see how the women in these stories are so clearly bereft of connection, um, even when, obviously, even when they're around others. Um, but I, I did think about that, like sort of the the modern convenience of the cell phone, of, um, I don't know, of Google Maps or <laughs> something. No, there was no, There's nothing to connect them. And it, it, that was such an interesting thing to me that there's there's a timelessness about the stories also. Well, you know, I, I've spoken about um, my mother bringing my father back from the border. Uh, my mother is U.S. born. My father is Mexicano. And before the Immigration Act in the mid-80s, uh, and before he had his status, you know, a lot more stable for our family, she was constantly going down to the border to pick him up when he was deported. And it, and it happened several times, many times when I was a child. It was only later when I kept asking her uh, to tell me a little bit about those experiences that her, her pride in how all of us maybe underestimated how difficult it was 
to, you know, to accomplish something like that when you don't have money, when you don't have credit card, when you don't have any modern inconvenience and what you're relying on strictly when it comes to the people that you love is the trust and the faith that they'll follow a plan. Hmm. Um, there's, there's a story in, in the, in the collection called the happiest girl in the whole USA hmm. that was based in part on my mother being very clear with me what the understood plan was between the two of them. The park in L.A. where she would go to meet him. Um, if he didn't make it back, she went to another park in San Diego right across the border. And, you know, the there's something fatalistic where they said, yeah, if, he, if he didn't show up to either one of those places, then ya estuvo. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to be coming back. Um, but it always worked. And there's something miraculous in that story there is something uh it tells me a lot about faith and, and as i said in trust and and love too um that that uh, you're going to rely on on these plans to to make sure that you come back together and it always worked and of course you know there are i'm sure that there are many many stories where that didn't work for many people um and there's a, a certain amount of gratitude that i have in hearing you know, my, my parents communicate these stories to me um, about how they survived, frankly. That's a, such an interesting idea that I hadn't considered. I mean, you look at a story like The Happiest Girl in the Whole USA, it's um, the same title as the Donna Fargo song, the kind of like kitschy song about a carefree girl. It's so incongruous, right? And you enter the story and it's just so wonderfully opposite of this idea. Um, although, you know, it, is that what our character, our our first person narrator is looking to be, the happiest girl in the whole USA? Um, but yes, I, this idea about sort of hitching your, your wagon to the idea of faith, well, if he's there, he's there. If he's not, oh, well. And you're so right. You're so right that that there's, it's an act of faith every time. And as I, as you say, it's that way for so many people. And can I just say that I'm just so glad that you brought up the Donna Fargo song because when I think about how people describe the domestic or the family story, I think sometimes when they limit what that means, they forget about communities like mine. Um, you know, that we have a different way of thinking about what a family story might be. And that's precisely why I chose that title, because that song seems to, you know, show you this idea of domestic bliss. And I keep thinking, boy, that's not at all how my mom would describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but in, in it fit, I said, yeah, why not, why not use it as a title that, that works against, you know, this idea of, you know, quote unquote, American happiness, um, and to to see that there there are many ways in which we can put our our families together and showcase our love for one another. Thank you for mentioning that. Oh no, and I was thinking about that song and how there's a a certain melancholy that I had never conceived before. I had never perceived before uh, in thinking about that song, and maybe just marrying it to the story sort of allowed me to see what was there all along. But there's there's something about how the character uh, engages with the woman that she meets, Natalia, and the ways that she is sort of 
that person for her, the person that might restore your sense of faith or your sense of connection. And that also was was a very uh, interesting part of the story for me in it wasn't necessarily a paying it forward, but it was sort of just um, an understanding between the two of them who are sort of on a, on very similar journeys. And Timoteo's there at last, and you know, and this the story can continue for our main character. But yeah, that that story, that story has really stayed with me. That one and anyone can do it also. I mean, the first line of anyone can do it is her immediate concern was money. Right out of the gate, first line of the story. What a first line. And this is a story about Delfina. Can you talk a little bit about this story? Yeah, in some ways it was it was uh, intended to be a mirror of Happiest Girl. Um, because when I completed Happiest Girl, I kept thinking about those moments when I was in graduate school or even early in my career when I when I when I recall how some people would would think about my work and, you know, use words like dignity or nobility, um, but not in a in a complimentary way, we'll say, um, you know, that it, well, you know, because your your characters are so downtrodden you'll never let them do anything terrible <laughs> and i i i've always thought that was a misreading um because i've allowed my characters to do some pretty reprehensible things so in this case i i just decided all right well let me see if i can come up with such a situation in which um those things are out the window when someone is in desperate desperate need and is looking for help and essentially does not get it. Um, the flip side of trust, essentially. It was a difficult story to write. And even now, as I hear people talk about it and the kind of impact that it has, I'm on the one hand, a little astounded by the response, <laughs> but on the other, um, not surprised. Um, because again, when the when we think about the difficulties of of surviving lives like ours and conditions like ours, you know, many, many different things can happen, including um, betrayal, uh, including uh, wrongdoing, and including things that will eventually invite loss. The idea in this story, as in the others, as you say, that the characters can do some pretty reprehensible things. I mean, this is it. We're all flawed. We're, we all have conflict. We're all looking for a way through. And to sanitize a story by making uh, these characters peerless and pure and and 100% good, that's, that's not realistic. And in these, you know, daily battles to survive, people sometimes are driven to do some desperate things. Um, I think, too, about in this story, how the little boy took the car, the, the tiny toy car, and you know, I I couldn't help but think about, I don't know, Victor Hugo or something, you know, this idea of um, uh, how he was so innocent. It, it, and it didn't feel like, oh, he, you know, he really needed that little car, he was, but he really was that innocent. And so it feels like Delfina is carrying the burden of that. I, it's hard for me to explain it, but I felt like at that point in the story, she's now carrying an extra burden about how her little son perceives the world and, and these 
very dire situations that they are in together. I want to ask you also about Presumido. This is another story in the collection. Um, Presumido is one of those words that we can translate sort of like directly and literally, but there's always a little bit more to say beyond the (laughs) dictionary (laughs) definition. And in the story, we have the characters of Juan and Daryl. They are a couple. And we come to see their relationship so clearly, thanks in part to another character named Severina. But the, the idea of presumido, I wonder if you can talk about that and the story a little bit, like the idea of the, of the title and that, that word with its shades of meaning and, I guess, connotations. Yeah, I'm, I'm very drawn to those words, precisely, as you know, because we can't translate them cleanly. Or um, even if we do offer a word, like, for example, maybe the easy presumptuous, it's not the same thing. Arrogant is more like, uh, is more aligned with that. There's something, and there's also, even in that word, presumido, um, already there's something built in within the way that we use it that's signaling someone who's um, leaping out of class and and I, I I knew that that was one that was going to be a word I was going to work with somehow. Susto is another one, and I and I recognize now in talking about the stories in the past couple of weeks, and people have asked about the use of Spanish. I think both times characters even say, "Do you know what this word is?" <laughs> <laughs> as if I'm as if I'm trying to, you know, make sure that 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 uh, you know the audience that does know Spanish um, is going to key in on the dimensions that they know behind those words. Um, you know, Presumido is, is a story about class. It's about, um, you know, they're, they're two gay men who are um, together and they have bought a house. But unspoken, uh, you know, again, that unsayable moment is one of them, uh, Juan, being very uncomfortable with what it signals to him. And he's just not simply able to declare it. I don't want to say necessarily that the story started with the word, but sometimes there are words like that in our vocabulary, that tension between English and Spanish that in some ways almost um, invites a story. It, 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 invites, it invites an explanation or some kind of parsing that I think is really valuable. Certainly the poets know it, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, why not? Why shouldn't it come into the realm of a story? It is so much about those, these layers that you're talking about. In the story, you write, presumido, the word had weight, like the heat in the kitchen with an added sting because Severina had to resort to Spanish to describe Daryl, the way he laughed with Bobby, with Fred, the way he wanted everyone to look at him. And then Juan says, no, I don't speak Spanish very well. And and he's lying. He's stretching the truth in that moment. And then there's this whole kind of deliberation on the different shades of meaning of that word. But I wanted to talk, too, about the connection to the father, to Juan's father coming into the, into the space and craning his neck to see the rooms. I mean, I even found something in that to to connect to this idea of maybe the father's willingness to 
walk in those spaces, be in those spaces, and try to understand that's then coloring the way that that one is uh, connecting to basically what is, you know, his future, you know, his new life in this space. Um, and then Severina's there too. <laughs> to remind him or or to maybe help him see that more closely. Yeah, I tend to use characters that way or the secondary characters that way. Um, sometimes, you know, there isn't a direct interaction between the main character and a side character like that, but there's usually just enough for me to shape um, how they're, they're able to read their own situation. And in this one, you know, uh, you know, this character is also, I don't want to call him an alcoholic, but we see him drink quite a bit, mm-hmm. but his alcoholism isn't necessarily, you know, an important juncture in the story. It is his avoidance, his avoidance of conflict, his inability to say what he needs, what he's thinking, um, but other people and how he sees either people observing him or observing his space. Um, that's what he uses to try to to figure something out uh, about his own life. There's also a couple of moments in that story where he's he's so fixated on watching images on TV <laughs> in kind of a stupor. Um, and and it, to me, it, it's meant to underscore just how he's desperate to find something that that shows him who he is. Yeah, it's a it's a it's sort of a strange story because it was a story that. I thought people would maybe not respond to because it was explicitly about class, but of a different kind of class. Um, but when the, when the collection was being shopped around to publishers, I was very surprised by how many people brought it up and how, how it seemed to give them a dimension of the Valley that they hadn't expected. That's so interesting because I've, I w- wondered a little bit about Again, the choice of the word in Spanish for the title and how that might put people off or make them assume things about the story. But it's it's another one of your stories that just takes the breath <laughs> right out of our bodies. <laughs> and the character of the father really uh, did that for me. Because I can see Juan's avoidance. I can see... You know, not to be too too uh, with Chekhov's gun and all that, but I sort of thought, huh? There's more beer. You know, there's there's somebody's got to drink that beer. And then I kept thinking about how terrible he felt uh, after drinking, and how it it was obviously a little bit of a source of tension between him and Daryl, and. And even, you know, Severina notices it too. So yeah, this this avoidance of uh, what is in front of him to be able to hold on to and accept as, you know, who he is, but it's, it is very hard. And there's other tensions in the story, of course, with the other, uh, the, the other people at all these dinner parties. I want to ask you finally about the consequences. This is the title story in the collection. It's very much about the idea of living, of moving through life with consequences, with the burden maybe of the consequences of our actions, actions obviously that occur at an earlier point in our lives, and then that just come home to roost, and there's a reckoning that has to happen. So such a profound story, and so profound to me to think about again and again with these these stories, how our choices affect us days, weeks, months, and years on. 
Well, to go back full circle, this is one of those stories that seem to have the underpinnings of a novel. You know, there's, oh, it's a big story. Um, we need to know a little bit more about um, Mark and also about Teddy. Yeah. Um, can you go back in time? Can you stay? Can you give us more about how they first met? So on and so forth. It's a story of a, a relationship that doesn't last very long. And Mark is in California. Teddy is from Texas, and he's just been, we'll later find out that he's been traveling from place to place, but he winds up with Mark. But because he gets ill, and it's it's not stated, but it's understood to be uh, HIV in the, in the 80s, he's got no place else to go. Mark is not willing to take care of him and sends him home. He goes back to Texas. That story, just when I tell it like that, even to myself, I think, wow, that maybe that should have been a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized as I was, as I was shaping it, that I could narrow it down to precisely those moments you were talking about to hone in on the idea of guilt. Um, what does it feel like to, to, you know, to make a decision that is so momentous like that and then instantly <laughs> regret it. And then I, I won't give away the ending, but Mark tries to do something to um, alleviate that sense of, of regret and guilt that he has. And I, I think it, co- it goes, it's for not, but you know, readers, readers might, might read the ending differently. But yeah, I mean, that, that that's one of them where I am really appreciative of the potential for the scope of a big story, but that also sends us a signal that many of the characters we find in any stories, I don't mean just mine, but in short stories, they're indicative of a, of a rich, deep life. And this is just the snapshot that the writer has chosen to give to you. Manuel Muñoz, thank you so much. What a thrill to get to talk to you. Thank you. This was absolutely my pleasure. Gracias. Manuel Muñoz is the author of the story collection, The Consequences. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides.